0: Welcome to Across the Margin the Podcast. I am your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin of the Podcast is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Check out all their offerings at OsirisPod.com. In this episode, I present to you an interview with journalist and author, Philip Watson. Philip worked for a number of years at GQ, where he was deputy editor, and Esquire, where he was editor-at-large. He has been freelance for the past decade or more, contributing articles and features to many publications in Britain, Ireland, and the U.S., including The Guardian, Telegraph, Sunday Times, Observer, Irish Times, London Evening Standard, Travel and Leisure, and the music magazine The Wire, to name a few. His music pieces include interviews with Elvis Costello, Nick Cave, Jill Scott-Heron, and D'Angelo, as well as articles on Ray Charles, Chet Baker, John Coltrane, Sun Ra, and such emerging stars of the new British jazz scene as Trish Close and Roller Trio. His most recent work, entitled Beautiful Dreamers, The Guitarist Who Changed the Sound of American Music, which is the focus of this episode, is the definitive biography of guitar icon and Grammy award-winning artist Bill Frisell, featuring exclusive interviews with Paul Simon, Bonnie Iver, and more. Over a period, of 45 years, Bill Frisell has established himself as one of the most innovative musicians at work today. A quietly revolutionary guitar hero for our genre-blurring times, he has synthesized many disparate music elements from jazz to pop, folk to film music, ambient to avant-garde, country to classical into one compelling singular sound. Described as the favorite guitarist of many people who agree on little else in music, Frizzell connects to a diverse range of artists and admirers, including Paul Simon, Elvis Costello, Lucinda Williams, and Bon Iver. Everybody loves Bill Frizzell. Through unprecedented access and interviews with his close family, friends, and collaborators, Philip Watson tells the story of why. In this episode, Philip and I discuss Frizzell's many musical influences that have contributed to inspiring his signature sound. We discuss... How coming of age in denver helped shape him musically we explore the many musical mentors frizzell had in his life through his musical journey what frizzell is like personally while considering the immense impact frizzell has had on a bevy of notable musicians and a whole lot more uh, it's a great fun interview um, phil's great his book is absolutely outstanding if you want to learn more about frizzell uh this is the place to go beautiful dreamers the guitarist who changed the sound of american music is available now links in the show notes so here it is my interview about bill frizell with philip watson Cross.
1: Cross. Cross cross the margin cross the margin cross the margin
2: Margin. Chris
0: Morgan. Chris Morgan. podcast let's dig right i love it. the book is amazing uh it's so comprehensive so so many i don't know i just it really was exciting to like find out what makes bill tick and makes him so <laughs> special. So it so it was great but what um what made you want to tell bill's story
1: well um I hope this isn't too oblique an answer, but um, there were a kind of a couple of things sort of humming around in my head about the time I was thinking about, you know, writing a nonfiction fiction book. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, one of them was that kind of old, maybe it's an old store now in writing, you know, mm-hmm. but it's this idea, you know, that writers don't choose their subjects, yeah. their subjects choose them. That that old one. So yeah. I had I've had a number of ideas for a nonfiction book, to be honest. And some of them were so yeah to be frank, more commercial than mm. this one. Mm. Yeah. And more practical, and that I live in Ireland and you know I spend a lot of time in London and in Europe. And there's Bill Frizzell in America, not just in America, but in that top left-hand side. Yep. And yep. then the Pacific Northwest. Uh-huh. So um but, you know, I talk about this, I think, in the acknowledgements. Yeah. Um, in some ways, I've been kind of thinking about this book, or this book has been choosing me for the yeah. last 35 years, ever yeah. since I kind of first heard Bill Frazelle play live in London in various different uh, ensembles. yeah. Um, and every time he released an album through the 80s, the 90s, and mm. into this century, yeah. I'd kind of think, well, that's incredibly interesting. and that's very different to the one and the one before that. And so he kept coming back to me in some ways. He kept choosing me, if you like. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. couldn't shake him off. <laughs> and, and, and then the other one was, I was reading Stanley Booth's, the great American music writer, Stanley mm-hmm. Booth's, The mm-hmm. True Adventures of the Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. We're rereading it. Yeah. And I mean, not to go into that whole story, but it's an extraordinary book. And there's one passage in that book where Stanley Booth is talking to Mick Jagger, and Mick Jagger's saying to him, well, what are you going to write about, and what's the book going to be? What, How are you going to approach this? And Stanley Booth kind of says to him, well, I, I don't really know what I'm going to write about, but I do know that you write about things that move your heart. Yeah, yeah. And I heard that, I kind of read that, and it kind of really resonated with me. I mean, my extra kind of addendum to that is, of course, that, and you keep your critical faculties about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the idea because this book took me, well, from start to finish with the pandemic, seven years. I mean, yeah, I saw that, yeah. Um, that, you know, that if you're going to, if you're going to commit to that amount of time and commitment and dedication to a project, you really it. do have to love it. Yeah, you have to. So, um, I took that as my, so I really did love Bill Frizzell's music. Mm-hmm. And then I was kind of thinking, well, I want to take it a little bit further than that. I kind of sort of know what he's done and I wanted to kind of really think about that. Yeah but I wanted to use the research and the writing to go, to stretch myself as a writer in the way that I think he stretched himself as a musician. So to really think about, well, you know, how and why he's done the things that he's done. And as I think I said elsewhere, and rather importantly, what it all might mean in the end. So, you know, I had a great love. I had this idea that he kept choosing me. And Mm -hmm. I thought if I go deeply enough into his music, there's a rich vein of ideas Uh, and content there to discover so Mm -hmm. that's sort of my answer
0: yeah no it's a wonderful answer makes it all makes sense what um what was over that seven year uh period um what was your access to bill what he was it sounds like he, he you know gave you gave you a lot is what is what I can really take away from reading it and kind of curious what he thought when you know he found out you were writing the book initially so what um what how much was bill involved
1: yeah, so, I mean, I I wasn't, I was wouldn't really have been interested in writing the book, of course, without the access. Yeah. That was absolutely crucial yep. to the book, that I, you know, I would have this unprecedented access. You mm-hmm. know, I went to, when he was living in Seattle, he lives now in Brooklyn, yep. but I went several times, you know, for a number of days. Mm-hmm. But we spent the first two days, and we only got up to his teen years, so we both kind of realized that this was going to take quite some time. Oh. So I think you know initially when I approached him we had a kind of we sat down when he was over here in Ireland playing the Kilkenny festival
2: mm-hmm. and I think
1: understandably I mean just like if somebody came and said Michael your life is extraordinarily interesting <laughs> you have all these different projects and podcasts you're an editor-in-chief <laughs> and I'm going to go and I'd like to write you know your life story until now and I'm going to go away and I'm going to talk to everybody you've ever <laughs> known yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of biographers are, but of course, yeah. it's a little bit different when that subject is still alive. Yeah. And so, yeah. understandably, I think mm-hmm. he was a little reluctant at first, and sure. he wondered, you know, what kind of relationship we, we would have creatively, even mm-hmm. financially, mm-hmm. And all those mm-hmm. things. So, I absolutely put his mind at rest that the project was going to be entirely independent of him. Yeah, yeah, you know, in terms creatively, editorially, financially, I wasn't looking, but what I was looking for was really his most valuable thing, I guess, of any artist, not just a musician. Mm. And this is, I guess, pre-pandemic when you know, he was getting booked up a couple of years ahead. You know, yeah. he, he may be working in a field which is not absolutely mainstream mm-hmm. in American music, but he's, as you probably know, greatly in demand as a touring absolutely. musician yep. and yep. Has with his own projects mm-hmm. and cl- collaborating and playing his assignment yep. on many, many, many different other albums. So yeah. I was asking for his most valuable thing, his time. Oh, yeah. And I wanted, to, I wanted him to take me to Denver, where he grew up. I wanted to see him in Europe. Mm-hmm. I was like his professional stalker like for <laughs> a couple of years, you know? So yeah, I mean, I, I think he really had to think about that, but mm-hmm. maybe I approached him at a good time. He was yeah. what, 63, I think when we first had the discussion, that mm-hmm. so maybe he was thinking about ideas of posteri- posterity and legacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah if it yeah. had been 20 years ago before that he might have thought what are you going to what are you going to write about yeah. but there was that and also I think he thought it was good that I clearly knew a lot about his music and had mm-hmm. written about music but I was coming from a broader perspective mm-hmm. as a kind mm-hmm. of general feature writer
0: yeah
1: um and yeah I was looking for that sweet spot I guess in mm-hmm. biographical life writing where I would have you know all of the access and all of the control yeah. like yeah. i was unlimited access but then i also wanted to say to him oh yeah you're not going to be able to control any of this <laughs> I mean, myself and my editor at faber as 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 it was the, the, the faber came on board mm-hmm. somewhere towards the end of the process yeah. um we'll decide what goes into this book and mm-hmm. you won't have any control so he showed an enormous amount of trust. faith and yeah. trust yeah. yeah trust is the sure. word Michael, really yeah. um and because i think he knows, just to, to, to tie this up, sure. I think he knows from his, how he works with other musicians that he mm-hmm. chooses to work with, yep. either in his own groups or mm-hmm. other projects that he works on, that if you give someone the freedom to be creative, mm-hmm. something better happens if you try and control that. I mean, maybe you as a as a journalist have been in the situation where you're doing a profile of someone mm-hmm. and either themselves or their representatives I tried to control that in some ways. Mm-hmm. You know, what questions mm-hmm. are you going to be asked? Can yeah. we see the copy when it's mm-hmm. all those things? He showed the most enormous freedom to me, to wow. me, because I think he realized that in the end, hopefully, and this is what I'm hoping as well, yeah. that it would lead to something that was had a greater level of integrity mm-hmm. and veracity and yeah. hopefully creativity, because that's how he works with other people that he plays with.
0: Yeah. You know, it's a, I saw that, um, you know, when you did speak to him about it, he didn't think there would be enough material or, or, or something about him. It's like a modesty there, but then 450 some odd pages <laughs> later and then the whole thing. But so let's talk a little bit about, you know, what makes Bill so special um, musically. And it's and I think it's kind of um, it's the. I think you write it. It's, it's he's got so many musical elements that he pulls into making his one unique sound. So, what sort of influences um, did Bill, um, you know, guided Bill as he as he was growing as a musician? And it's funny. It's not only I saw one of one of the um, uh, influences and people he speaks about isn't even a musician. It's Ed Roth, who's the, the cartoonist. But yeah, so there's yeah, just yeah. a vast array of uh, things and. Bill, it's obvious, was just inhaling music and just has a, you know, a passion for hearing everything. But what t- what type of influences really steered uh, Bill towards this unique sound of his?
1: Yeah, the, the really interesting thing about him is that you know if you think about just his relationship to to jazz, for example, mm. <laughs> you know, mm. so and he raises all those issues about all those questions about you know what exactly is he playing? Yeah. And the reason I called the book "Beautiful Dreamer." And I start the book, as, you, as you'll know, with this extraordinary dream that he had, yep. which you know I go into some detail, but it's essentially a dream where he hears this, has this dream of music and it's where mm-hmm. he can hear all these extraordinary sounds. He can't quite identify exactly what each sound is. Mm-hmm. And it's not a drone and it's not kind of violins. It's not orchestral. It's almost as if it's all the music he's ever heard in his life or been influenced by or been interested mm-hmm. in all coalescing rather beautifully and harmoniously into this sound. And that's kind of what I think he's managed to achieve in his own guitar sound and in the extraordinary breadth of his own music. Mm -hmm. So of course, he's deeply serious about the idea of honoring the tradition of jazz. Yeah, And of course he has played with many great jazz musicians Mm -hmm. and won a Grammy in a category that was related to jazz. Mm -hmm. But I think his extraordinary achievement And why he's been very influential on the musicians that have come after him is the idea that you can be rooted in jazz, but not necessarily defined by it. You can allow all these other interests and influences. And you talk about when he was growing up in Denver in the 60s. So, you know, hearing the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show when he was Mm -hmm. almost turning 13 or seeing Hendrix twice. Yeah. You know, in the 60s in Denver, right. yeah. all the extraordinary music from blues, the mm-hmm. folk scene that was in, in Denver. And I think he went through a period where, because he was very influenced and very interested, say, in the guitarist Jim Hall or mm-hmm. other yeah. guitarists like Wes Montgomery, mm-hmm. where he had quite a purist kind of period. Yeah. He then realized that actually to be to really have a voice and to really do something original, to develop his own language and vernacular on the instrument, mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. had to allow all these interests and passions into his sound so I think he's a kind of Keith Jarrett had a great line about what jazz represents to him I think I quote this in the book or maybe not anyway is the freedom to be yourself you know that's the great freedom that jazz represents Mm -hmm. so why I think he's been so if you're a musician in London say and I know you've You've talked to, to Phil Freeman about this. In yeah, his yeah,
2: yeah. That's, yeah. you know, yeah. that
1: if you're, that, this is taken as read, you know, you mm-hmm. might be interested in jazz, but of course you're open to the incredible diversity and multiplicity yeah. of music yeah. that exists in London right now. And that's mm-hmm. what's been very interesting about the London jazz scene over the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. I think Bill Frizel was doing that 30, 40 years yeah. ago. He was yeah. saying, okay. Yeah, I am. I am very influenced by Jim Hall. Jim Hall's a genius. And mm-hmm. he studies with Jim Hall and he takes Jim Hall's model and lessons. Yeah. But then what he realizes is that he's equally interested in, yeah, well, the Beatles or yeah. in... Surf in rock. Surf rock or, <laughs> or bluegrass or yep. Hank Williams or mm-hmm. um, Aaron Copeland yep. or Bob Dylan. or mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, to bring it into my subtitle, that's why I've kind of, Think he's had such an extraordinary influence on American music of the Mm -hmm. sound of American music. I'm not saying he's unique in that way, Mm -hmm. but he's certainly, you know, he's sort of developed his own guitar sound. So that's kind of changed things in that way by allowing all these sounds in and Mm -hmm. synthesizing them in some really interesting way into this singular sound. And then he's kind of changed jazz because. He's allowed all this, what people have termed Americana, whatever mm. that might mean. Mm-hmm. There's another category definition that we have to grapple with.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, all those American roots musics or vernacular musics from kind of country to, to, to blues. Mm-hmm. And then he's kind of amalgamated it all in this extraordinary way. And I think there are very few guitarists, very few musicians, very few American musicians. Who've done that with such versatility and completeness. Yeah. So that's why I think he's a deeply influential musician for those that have come after him.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. You know what? And and you touched on it for briefly there. I was really fascinated, and you know, that it was I was naive to what Denver could really uh he, he help. I didn't think Denver would provide so much um eclectic different music in there. I mean, he's he was it seemed like it was an interesting place that helped shape them. It's, you know, there was, uh, you talk about the, um, you know, the DIY aesthetic of Denver and then like all the different, um, you know, people who were just like, there was like a thriving music scene there too, in the time, which I didn't, I wasn't aware of as well. Could you speak a little bit about how Denver actually, you know, kind of enhanced his, his musical taste?
1: Yeah. So there was all those things happening in the sixties, but he also mm-hmm. spent this period a really crucial period in the seventies between going to Berkeley twice. And I guess you have to read, have to read the book to work to, to, to find out why he did that. But yeah, he had these-
0: was, that was really surprising. I didn't realize he was there for a week the first time. <laughs>
1: exactly. So he had these, I mean, I, I think it'd be unfair to call them these kind of lost years, mm-hmm. but you know, where he was in a, it even showed me where the his tiny little apartment was in this building in downtown Denver, where he was just sitting in his room, practicing his, his guitar. But yeah, what Ron, the great, late uh, Ron Miles, great trumpeter and Mm cornetist Ron Miles, talked to me about this, this kind of Denver sound. And what he says is is that Denver was, I mean, it was in this interesting crossroads for musicians that were, say, coming from Chicago to, say, San Francisco, Mm -hmm. that they would come through. So they really got to see a lot of the the great musicians and bands Mm -hmm. of the 60s and 70s. But in terms of its scene, and when Bill was there at the beginning of the 70s, it wasn't really possible... To be one type of musician, yeah. so I mean, there was a there was a kind of folk revival scene, mm, and there were mm. musicians that I guess, were, but everybody seemed to be rubbing up against each other. It's the classic kind of Bill Fazell model, yeah, yeah. kind of petri dish of Bill Fazell. Yeah. I should have used I should have used that line used in the book that. anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, as Ron Miles says, it's you know, it's it's where everybody seems that you can't be say a working jazz musician mm-hmm. in Denver at the beginning of the 70s, there just wasn't enough work to go around. Yeah. Yep. So you ended up playing yeah, like in a yeah, yep. with a rock musician, mm-hmm. or you might mm-hmm. even end up playing with somebody who normally played folk, but mm-hmm. you'd end up playing in different bands and different combinations, all these people, rock bands, that were also maybe interested in, mm-hmm. in some aspects of of jazz or, you know, pop bands, whatever, yeah. or end, end up, you know, in some, he, Bill was also playing with, some kind of classical musicians that mm. he he knew from yeah. his time when he, he studied at the University of North Carolina in Greeley. So yeah. he, I think it was a particularly, it may not have had quite the, the scene and the yeah. dynamism of say a scene in Chicago or mm-hmm. New York or, or certainly San Francisco at that time. But it uniquely, because yeah. it's just, you know, I hadn't realized until I went to Denver, even though it's a city of three million people or whatever it is now. It's this mm. tiny little speck yeah. in the middle yeah. of the Midwest. West. You <laughs> yeah. know, I'm, not, I'm not from America. Was just, ah. There's the big, you know, theatrical backdrop of the Rockies yep. and the Plains just, and there it is, this small little place that I guess people had to be, as you say, there was a DIY mm-hmm. um, ethic. People had to be resourceful. Mm-hmm. They had to be flexible. They had to collaborate. And it was a really great kind of proving ground yeah. for the musician that Bill Fazell would then become.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I was really surprised by that. I, I did not know what was going on back then, but it just, it does help you understand who Bill is and why it sounds like that way. What was beautiful too, going through the book was how many he was gifted with so many amazing mentors. I mean, Dale Bruning, Buddy Baker, Gary Burton, all these people that he went through time. He was just, I don't know. He was, it was the, the, seeing it laid out like that, that all these people and yeah. And then, that time with the, uh, the lessons with Jim Hall. That was amazing. But can you speak a little bit about some of these mentors and you know, how, how they were shaping his sound and his career as he went through?
1: Yeah, I mean, and Bill is very, very honest about this. And it's mm. kind of, you're looking for these as a biographer, <clears throat> excuse me, as a biographer, you're looking for you know, these really key moments. There's one I describe in the book, which you'll probably remember with Dow Bruning, who um, is still alive and Mm. is a really extraordinarily respected guitar teach guitarist Mm -hmm. and guitar teacher in the Denver area has been for many, many years. Bill kind of sought him out and um, he was, he he exposed Bill to all kinds of music. Again, you know, say the music of Bartok or Stravinsky Mm -hmm. um, that Bill maybe hadn't paid enough attention to at that time as a 17 year old guitarist who was, you know, looking to play blues or whatever Mm it was, or to, or to be in the next Hendrix or all the other influences that are happening to, but there's this one moment and I guess any life is full of these moments where things could have taken a different course if this Mm -hmm. hadn't happened. There's one where um, Bill is talking about going to study music at the University of Northern Carolina, Mm -hmm. rather than his father was a a very successful academic, a Mm -hmm. biochemist, Mm -hmm. um, a professor of biochemistry. And at that time was working in the School of Medicine at the University of Colorado in Denver, and maybe had, and Bill's the, the oldest child, he has a brother, Bob, um, but maybe those expectations that the oldest child at that time, at the end of the 60s, uh, yeah. would perhaps go into the profession, uh, yeah. into a profession of some kind, or academia.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Here's Bill Fazell saying that he's not only interested in music, but he wants to play this instrument that in the 60s, don't forget, it's almost the devil's instrument. Absolutely, you know? yeah. <laughs> it's, it, you know, now, we're, we're, it, it, don't forget the guitar had only started to come through in the 50s and 60s yeah. with the advent of popular music
2: mm-hmm, and mm-hmm.
1: rock and roll. Yeah, It yep. was almost, I think, as maybe I say or someone else says in the book, he was suggesting almost like he was going to run away with the circus. Yeah. You know, to <laughs> what was going to happen? He was be- going to become this kind of reprobate and he was going to fall off the tracks and it was yep. going to be sex drugs. It seems and reckless.
0: And it can seem reckless. reckless.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. So, it, it, this one crucial moment with Dale Brilling where... His parents had already moved to New Jersey because mm-hmm. father had been offered a, a promotion, and again was a, a leading um, academic in a in a in a department in, in New Jersey. They fly in to to uh, to Denver. They have this meeting with Dale Bruning. They're basically saying to him, you know, is our son? This is he's kind of eighteen. He's He's thinking of studying music. And he was like, of studying
0: absolutely. Guitar. He's, he's <laughs> got it. He's got the goods. <laughs>
1: yeah. So, and, and, and to, yeah. And if he didn't have that, that particular mentor and teacher, yep. Yep. who not only opened him up to a whole world of different types of music, yeah. but said to his parents, absolutely. Not only does this student of mine, your son, mm-hmm. have all the equipment musically in terms of talent and dedication, And they, which they always, because his first instrument was clarinet. He'd already been very accomplished on that instrument, but he absolutely has what it takes Mm -hmm. to forge some career in music, which, you know, and if he hadn't had that person, maybe they said, well, another, another teacher might say, well, yeah, it is very risky. And yeah, um, I've seen too many musicians go off the, off the rails. And, but he absolutely reassured his parents who were, you know, conservative, um, And maybe very, very cautious and worried about mm-hmm. the path their son was on. So mm-hmm. that was very, very crucial. That was just one person at yeah. that time that helped him on his way to become the musician he subsequently became. So life is full of that. And that's what's interesting as a biographer. You think there are key moments
2: mm-hmm.
1: where if it hadn't been for that person saying that thing or doing that thing at that time, yep. that life might have been... Maybe different. it would ultimately would have worked out, but for those few years, it might've been very different. So he was very lucky to get some very supportive people mm. in his teens and early twenties that really helped him along the way.
0: Saw his potential and saw, knew what he could do. And yeah, I mean, the parental support though was pretty impressive though. I was, his, his parents, I mean, he'd mentioned how um, his father was in the music. So the idea of doing it for a living wasn't completely crazy to him. And they, you know, they had his, had his back in a lot of ways, and definitely Dale helped. But um, so I saw a fun story of you, the way that you basically, Paul Simon's not an easy interview to get, is from what I'm hearing. And you found a way to use Bill's music to uh, get a little meeting with Paul. And Paul's someone who's very deeply in, uh, who is also inspired by, he's, he's a fan of Bill's. But uh, so you uh, you were able to get a conversation with Paul based on having some music of Bill's, is that correct?
1: yeah so yeah there's, there's, a, there's a few ways i can answer this question but there's yeah. this the structure of the book just uh for your listeners is, yeah, sure. is it's kind of a, it's kind of like a threefold structure mm-hmm. as you've probably worked out so there's certainly a narrative there's a narrative structure which you know which tells the story of bill Frisell's life and times both mm-hmm. musically and personally there's these thematic chapters which i i look at say bill Frisell's work as a composer or trying to define his sound i do a mm-hmm. A kind of a, char- a, a sort of a character analysis at the start, and um, his his work in relation to the visual arts. So there's thematic chapters, yeah, and there's yeah. these count- uh, these listening sessions, mm-hmm. which I've called counterpoints, of which Paul Simon is one of them, um, where I sit down with different people. I mean, yeah, you know, I've got a list: Paul Simon, Justin Vernon, and Bonnie. Vernon, yeah. which is not an easy interview to get. Nope. Um, Sam Amidon, Jim Woodring, the cartoonist, Rhiannon Giddings, mm-hmm. the Bad mm-hmm. Plus, people like that. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, the great thing was, yeah, I mean, the story with Paul Simon very briefly is, is that I, which you may, I, I may have read, talked about this before, but yeah, yeah. I, I phone up his uh, PR person, his record company and his representative in Dublin. And I say, I, I know Paul Simon's coming to Dublin. Um, I'd like to request an interview with him. And the PR says, "Well, you can do that, Philip, but I have to tell you now, it's not going to happen.
0: It might not you pan know? out well.
1: It won't pan out because <laughs> you know he's on tour. It's, he's part of this fourteen-month global mm-hmm. arena tour with Sting. Um, so that's hmm. the worst time. To, he doesn't have an album to promote. Yep. And to be honest, in all the time we've represented him, he's never given an interview through this office. Oh, so we've ne- he's never wow. actually granted an interview to the." To Sony's office Mm -hmm. in Dublin, but I said, "Well, will you put the you please at least give me some guarantee that you'll pass my email on Mm -hmm. to his management to your to your to his the contacts that you have." And about again, to cut the long story short, Mm -hmm. a few days later, the the PR phones me back and he says, "Well, that's really quite extraordinary because Paul Simon says yes." I said yes, and he says to me, "Now tell me again, who is this guy, Bill
0: Frizzell?" Oh, they didn't
1: know. (laughs) know. No, no. So. So I, so yeah, the great, so that was, I think probably, even though Paul Simon was about to play this huge arena, mm-hmm. he had a day before, he's in some huge suite, biggest suite I've ever seen, I think, in Dublin. Mm-hmm. And he's got, a, he's got a little bit of time. And I'm I'm going there to say, I don't want, you know, you've been interviewed thousands of times, Paul Simon. I don't want to really talk about you or your music, yeah. but I am really interested to sit down in a room with you mm-hmm. and play you some of Bill Vrazel's music and tell me what you kind of think about it, what yeah. you feel about it, what are your ideas about it? So, and it, the same thing worked with Justin Vernon, who mm. really has not given hardly, because I guess he was so interviewed out yeah. after <laughs> the success of Forever Forever Ago. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, but again, because it appealed to him that I was coming to say, I'm just gonna bring, you know, a Bluetooth speaker and an, mm. and an iPad, and we'll just listen to an album together and, that appealed to them, and also these both those figures are deeply interested in Bill Frisell's music. And Justin Vernon is like a scholar of Bill he's, Frizzell's He's music.
0: like, it's, I couldn't believe how big a fan he is. He has a tattoo on his back dedicated to his song. He was just, he was saying like all him and his friends were just kind of like Frisell heads, like way back in the day. It was amazing.
1: Yeah, no, they, so that's a real. I came out of the Justin Vernon. Uh, session, we were about an hour and with Paul Simon, he gave me extra time because he was so oh. enjoying it so much uh-huh. and um, because you know, the thing is, there's a thing that I discovered when I was doing this thing called Invisible Jukebox for The Wire, like at the beginning of the mm-hmm. 90s, which is like their version of Downbeat's Blindfold Test, that if you, if I was to ask, say well, I don't know, Paul Simon about Ladysmith Black Mombazo, I mean obviously yeah. he's been asked about that countless times mm-hmm. he would have something to say about that But if you actually play him some of that music or some maybe some interesting aspect of that music, something he maybe hasn't heard for a little, he's going to respond in a completely different way. It's going to be very emotional, Mm -hmm. very visceral. You know, it's the kind of physical thing because you're playing, it's almost axiomatic, you're playing a musician music. You're sitting in a room communing with the music together. And being silent and listening to it, and it's a really wonderful thing. Yeah. And so I found by doing those invisible jukeboxes that you got a completely different interview yeah. out of a musician. So that's why that's I thought it would. a wonderful
0: idea. It's a great yeah, idea. Yeah, I mean, it's it's yeah. a bit high risk, Michael, yeah. because
1: you can't you can't editorialize afterwards. Sure. All yeah. you've got is the Q and A, and
2: you mm-hmm. have
1: to make sure that your questions and the answers are really good, <laughs> and you have to edit them into a narrative to make it yeah. work. Yep. But what I think. The reason I think the book, someone asked me why why my book is is a little bit different. And it's maybe Mm -hmm. not for me to say, Mm -hmm. but in terms of music biography, it's a little bit different because you get these counterpoints. They're they're interspersed. They're like Mm -hmm. intermissions. Mm
2: -hmm. Someone Mm -hmm.
1: called them palate cleansers or sorbets Mm -hmm. between the kind of main chapters, Mm -hmm. where you get a break from my voice and my theorizing Mm -hmm. and my research and writing and you get someone else's view and perspective on Bill Fazell. Mm. And I think some of the reviewers and some of the readers have kind of liked that format because it yeah. creates a variety of atmospheres and moves. moods.
0: No, definitely really, really cool framework. I've really enjoyed it. Um, I really love the uh, section, the Raised by Deer section, because you really got a chance to hear what people think about Bill personally. Um, and uh, you got to know him a little bit, um, but you do describe him as a complex and contradictory character um so how is that the case it's what was great to see too it seemed like he's a really good person with a huge heart as well but you know there's a lot of sides to Bill that were presented in that chapter so I'd like to hear you talk about that a little bit
1: yeah I mean the the thing about him is that and the reason that some people kind of said to me wow you really did manage to draw him out obviously as I said I had a lot of time Mm -hmm. is that you know he's a shy person yeah and he's, you know, he's, he's introverted, mm-hmm. you know, he's, um, he holds his counsel. And he doesn't really, if you ask him a question, he's extraordinarily kind of creative in his answers. Mm. He doesn't like to speak like maybe you and I would as maybe media people, mm. and then, you know, in perfect linear ideas, and mm. hopefully, fully formed sentences and paragraphs. He has this Thing where I think I try to describe it in that chapter, which I wanted to put. I think it's chapter five in the book. I wanted to put this right up front, this kind of extended character study, Mm -hmm. just like so you're introduced to this central character in the story, Mm -hmm. just like you would do in a novel. Yeah, this central character happens just the a person who's alive and is called Bill Fazell But yeah, and so you get to I hope see all these kind of complex sides of his character, and that he's. You know, he might hold his counsel, he might be quite reserved, yeah. but he actually has a hell of a lot to say. He might seem quite mild-mannered, but as other people say, he's fantastically stubborn and determined when it comes to pursuing a goal in his music or not compromising yeah. in his music. So he's. that's why I think Gene Santoro, the great critic, called him this, you know, Clark Kent of the electric mm-hmm. guitar. It's a great line, you know. Great line, but he seems, you know. I wish I'd thought of that line. <laughs> but um, you know, he, he was—he did it in the '80s. But yep. um, you know, so he seems this, yeah, you know, both as a person and as a musician, you know, somewhat awkward. And but then when he plays and when he expresses himself mm. on the guitar, it's a whole other side of his personality. Almost as if, as if it's a catharsis. And yep. it's a bit like that. As an interviewer, you have to. It's a really great lesson. I think he'd be. If I was teaching a journalism course, mm-hmm. I'd almost hire Bill Fazell <laughs> and say and say, okay, here's, here's here's a challenge. Interview this man for 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And of course, what you have to do is ask a question and then hold back. Give yep. him the space yeah. that he puts into his music and, and he d- puts into his answers. So he has, he's enormously intelligent,
2: mm-hmm, he's mm-hmm.
1: enormously creative and original. It's just that you have to allow him to express himself in the way that he he does yeah and so that's that's an interesting process as an interviewer but yeah he's full of all kinds of signs Mm. and complexities um and contradictions and to be honest i found that really fascinating to get to know but as you say also at the heart of it he and he brings that kind of warmth and humanity to his Mm. his guitar sound and his playing he's full of um He's full of love, Bill Frizzell. It's almost embarrassing to say.
0: No, it's that's beautiful. A... <laughs> you, you can feel in his music. You can see it in just his mannerisms when you're watching him play too. He's it's, it's That's a real thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely it is. Yeah. And, and musicians, you know, almost when you talk to them, they say, what's it like to play with Bill Frizzell? And they yeah. almost talk about that, that he's extraordinarily generous to them. Yeah. As Joey Barron, the great drummer, says it almost feels like it's your band when you're playing with him. Yeah, yeah. He wants, wow. you, he wants you to bring. Yep you know what you've got to the party as my old Mm -hmm. editor at GQ used to say and that's what he did with me as a writer but yeah they all talk about this kind of uh tapestry of love and warmth Mm. and Mm. generosity and humanity and it's not it's really not an exaggeration to say that's the kind of vibe that he gives off
0: I love it I love it that's so cool I love it and towards the end of the book you do talk about how um you know walking away from it you, you became a better listener and that, that's the gift that, that Bill gave. Um, so kind of just to bring things home here, I want to ask you and uh, for the listeners out there, um, let's, let's give them some music recommendations. What's your, uh, do you have a favorite Frizzell album of, uh, or a couple that you could point to? Wow, Michael, that's the, that's, that's
1: the hardest question of the loaded, world, of course. Loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> that's just unkind. Yep. Now, um, well, I mean, the only thing I'd say is that Faber, I mean, this is not, I will answer your question. Sure. But if anyone's interested, Faber asked me to put together a kind of a playlist, which is on mm. Spotify. Oh, so great. If you, put, if you put in a Bill Frizzell playlist and my name, Philip yep. Watson, there's, I came up with 26 different tracks from twenty-six different albums, awesome. which span uh, you know a real diversity of Bill Fazell's music. So, yep. if someone's looking, if they've maybe heard, well, if they haven't heard any Bill Fazell that's a good starting point. Yeah, yeah. If they've heard some and they're looking to explore further, mm-hmm. that'll hopefully lead them to some other discoveries. Very, I'm glad I asked. Wow. wow. Well, I guess there are three albums came into my head, mm-hmm. so I'm mm-hmm. cheating. I no, don't know. I don't, I don't have a. I mean, if you ask me in half an hour, probably my favorite would be yeah. different. But, but oh, yep. Yeah. There was one, I mean, there's an album, Have a Little Faith, which came mm. out, what I should know, 93, 93 which yep. really made me, really made me kind of sit up and listen. This is, this is kind of, it's, I think it's the musical equivalent. Again, I wish I thought about this uh, and put this in the book. Of a great
0: American of, novel, right? A,
1: a great novel. Yeah, exactly. I
0: love that line. You know, yeah.
1: I mean, it's like, so, you know, where because he, it, the breadth and depth and diversity that you kind of think, wow. So you go from Stephen Foster, Aaron Copeland to Bob mm. Dylan and Madonna. Of our Sonny Rollins and Muddy, that's an, mm-hmm. so that's an extraordinary record. There's those two records again, which I think most Frizzell listeners gravitate towards because they're the complete kind of statement mm-hmm. of his the way he has integrated all these beautiful sounds into this beautiful dream of music. So that's gone just like a train and um good dog, happy man. Yes. Two yeah. two wonderful albums at the end of the awesome. 90s. And because I'm a big Frizzell, a a big fan of Bill Frisell playing live. Hmm. There's an album that was released, I think 2005 roughly called East West. Oh, the double oh, live the, one, right? The double live. Yeah. yeah. That's where you get Bill playing in the village Vanguard and Yoshi's mm-hmm. in Oakland where he's playing trio, which I love that format. I think mm-hmm. that really, again, it's not that he's playing as a leader. It's absolutely three equals making music, but you get the sense of him stretching out on a song like Shenandoah or have a mm-hmm. little faith or mm-hmm. many different songs. Most about half and half originals and half and half um, his interpretations of yeah. great American songs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say any one of those, well, four actually. So I really yeah, have yeah,
0: cheated. We helped, we helped but, it. It
1: was, but then, of course, Beautiful Dreamers, I should really yeah. mention as well, which yeah. comes, links into the where that's a trio with Rudy Royston and mm-hmm. Adrian Kiang on viola. but yeah. An unusual trio, which again, they play an incredible diversity of music mm-hmm. and somehow. Through the enormity of their talent and their deep listening, they make into some wonderful whole. So that's another one, beautiful dreamers, because it links into the title of the book.
0: <laughs> perfect, perfect, perfect way to put an end to that. So I got to tell you though, I love this book, but it's a—it's like a gift to Bill Frizzell fans who like, because he's kind of you know, there's I—I I knew no way to like learn more about him or, or find out, try to crack that puzzle that he is, and it just. It really, it's deeply insightful and I loved it and I'm glad to spread the word and talk to you about it. So thank you so much, Philip. I really appreciate your time.
1: Michael, thank you very much. I really appreciate your, your interest and, and support for the book. That's, that's really great. Thank you very much.